But what is it that you love about summer? Have you thought about this? Uh, you know, we, we often have this conversation in our home about which is our favorite season. And Tina's would be the fall. Mine clearly is the spring. I just love when dead stuff comes to life. It just seems like there's this great thing that, that's taking place. Um, but I have to say, I, I really enjoy summers as well. And there's lots of things to like about it. I love the fact that there are long days. I love those uh, days in, in uh, late June and early July where you can uh, get up at 5 in the morning and it's already light out and you can go to bed at 11 o'clock and it's still light out. Um, <clears throat> I love just being able to be outside. You know, I always feel like I have to defend Edmonton's weather. I don't know if you feel like this, if you have friends in other parts of the country. Um, <clears throat> but I, I actually enjoy the weather. I, I have to admit, winter, no, not so much. But I love the summers and the weather that we have. I call it room temperature. I haven't worn a jacket since probably early, early May, except for maybe when it's raining. It's like whatever the temperature is outside, it's inside. It's not too hot. It's very, very comfortable. But one of the things that really stands out to me about the summer is, are, are the smells of summer. Do you know what I'm talking about? I love the smell of rain. The other night, uh, Wednesday, I think Friday night, that storm rolled through. I think it was just after supper. And Tina and I just sat on the, on the porch, and there's just this wonderful uh, aroma that fills the air, this freshness that fills the air. I love the smell of fresh-cut grass. So I love, I love cutting the grass, and there's just, a, just something about that. But probably the one that sticks out for me the most is when somebody in the neighborhood is having a barbecue. And, uh, and you know that, oh, man, that smells good. And it's just wafting from somewhere. You don't even know where it's coming from. And you're kind of turning and you're kind of going, and we're having hot dogs? Like it just doesn't, just doesn't work, right? And, and unless you're barbecuing them, because then it, it kind of smells all the same anyways. But um, it's, it's just an incredible thing. This morning, I want to talk to you about an event that happens in the Bible uh, where a massive barbecue took place. It's uh, one of our ancient testimony stories, and the host of this barbecue was a man by the name of Elisha, an ordinary person through whom God used to do extraordinary things. So I want to dive into the verses that Nathan read for us, and as we do, maybe there's some questions that come to mind uh, that I'll just kind of put in your mind that you can be thinking about, and, and one of those is simply this, what happens when God asks for more? How do we respond? And what if God wants to do an extraordinary work using ordinary people, and what if I'm one of those ordinary people? And what can we learn about how God might want to use us? How, how do we respond? What, what actions and practical steps do I need to take? So let me introduce Elisha to you, first of all. Elisha enters the scene of biblical history rather suddenly. Now, you may recall my message a few weeks back, almost a month ago, on the prophet of Elijah and how we can deal with discouragement. That's what we learned from his life. And after God gave Elijah some rest and some refreshment, he gave him a place of refuge, he, he offered to himself a, a, a revelation of himself to Elijah, he ultimately gave him a responsibility. And that is, God commissioned Elijah... 2, in verse 16 of chapter 19, 1 Kings, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah to succeed you as prophet. So this was the task or the responsibility that was given to Elijah the prophet to go to Elisha because he would be his successor. 
And so if you're interested in reading more about Elisha's life events, you can turn your Bible to 2 Kings uh, chapter 2 and read all the way through chapter 9 and then skip ahead to chapter 13. And, and that's basically the, the, the primary content that we have of Elisha. Elisha is actually only mentioned once even in the New Testament. So he, he kind of flies under the radar. Um, certainly Elijah would be this well-known, colorful prophet of the Old Testament. But Elisha had a significant ministry as well. Now there are some biological facts that we can know about Elijah by just studying those chapters and kind of putting this together as a summary. We know that he then was a, a, a prophet that served during the 9th century B.C., His name means God is salvation, which I thought was significant, that he, having had this transformative event in his life, uh, talks about his very namesake means that there's this transformation of salvation that takes place. We learn that his father's name was, was Shaphat. He served as a prophet, that is, as God's spokesperson to the northern kingdom, that is Israel. And he served during a time when the tension between um, God and Baal worship still existed. And so if you remember kind of some of the things that Elijah had to deal with in his life, there was this constant draw of God's people from worshiping the one true God to be worshiping these other gods and uh, primarily uh, this God named Baal. And so Elisha's ministry was filled with signs and miracles and proclamations and warnings. And uh, He demonstrated throughout his life the gifts of knowledge and foresight. And so when you put all of that together, the responsibility that had, when he did it and how he did it, he became known as a prophet of peace and healing. Now, we can also connect a few dots and, and make what I think are some pretty safe assumptions about Elisha. At the point of this event that, that was read for us that we're going to look at in a little, a little bit more detail in just a few seconds, um, he was probably about 30 years old. And he served as prophet during the reign of six kings or over the span of about 50 years. And then he died when he was about 80. And so when you think about that as a, as a lifespan, I mean, oftentimes when we're in our, in our 20s or late 20s, early 30s, Sometimes God really gets a hold of our hearts and really changes us there. And then we carry that through maybe for the next 50, 60 years of our life. And then if we live to 80 or 90, we think, hey, we've had had a pretty good life. And so there's a lot of parallels, I think, with kind of the chronology of, of Elisha's life and what might happen in our lives. And before being called as a prophet, he was a successful farmer. There's every indication here that he was doing quite well for himself. So consider the facts from verse 19. It says there that he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. And so a yoke of oxen was simply a pair. So he had 12 pairs. I can do the math, 2 times 12. He had 24 oxen. I like when the math is easy. It's helpful uh, to me particularly. And each pair had its own plowing equipment. And, uh, And so he had 11 other drivers, it says that he himself was driving one, so, so he was very hands-on. He got his hands dirty with the others, but there were 11 other uh, drivers driving these um, yoke of oxen. And so when you think about that and you, you kind of um, think through that a little bit more, 
you realize that if you have 12 pairs of oxen, each with their own plow, that you can cover a lot of ground with these 12 pairs. So he very likely had a very large farm as well. Because, you know, you don't just line up these plows side by side and say, okay, ready, go, and you just, you know, cross the field, and you're kind of done, you call it a day, and you go on. No, you, you keep the plows out there for as long as you can, doing as much work as you can to cover all of the field. And so there's no doubt in my mind that Elisha was doing very well. His family was likely very wealthy. You could say that he had it made. Wealth, uh, a growing, thriving business. He had all this property. He had the equipment to farm that property. And so by all accounts, you could say of Elisha is that he was successful, that he was maybe even very comfortable in what he was doing, settled, um, maybe even had an RSP. I don't know. But he couldn't have asked for more until God asked him for more. And so the question that I want us to look at is, what is the transformation or the transition that takes place to go from being a successful farmer to go on to becoming the leading prophet of his day? And I believe that this is just another example of God's extraordinary work with ordinary people. And we're going to look at this in three phases. Phase one, I'm just going to call calling. Elijah was told by God, remember, to go and anoint Elisha. I'm going to maybe get those mixed up sometimes, so pay attention. Um, That that Elijah would go and anoint Elisha as the one who would succeed him as prophet. And so Elijah goes and he tracks down Elisha. And Elisha, he's just going about his business, doing what he, ever, what he did every day, and he's out plowing his fields. Excuse me. <coughs> As I push the mic right into that. Um, and so at the end of verse 19 we read, Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. And so what's the significance of that? It's this. The cloak, or some translations, if you're following uh, in your own Bibles, might use the word mantle. This cloak represented the call of God. It was a symbol of the prophetic ministry that he was being called to. He was being called by God into leadership, or spiritual leadership specifically. And what's interesting is there's no words exchanged, but the meaning is clearly understood by this act. And within seconds, Elisha responds, and he leaves his pair of oxen, and he runs after Elijah. Now, let's just think about this for a moment, because this is really a remarkable and transforming event in Elisha's life. He seems to know right away that responding to this call on his life was going to cost him. He was going to have to sacrifice. And remember, he had a lot to give up, right? He had a loving family that he had to leave. Because he even says to Elijah, let me just go and kiss my father and my mother goodbye. He knows he's going to leave them behind. He's got this farm, all that he's known for all of his growing up years to this point in his life. The oxen, the equipment, all of these things. The financial security that he had in that position. The comfort He was a foreman of sorts, right? He had the the power and the authority. He was the lead driver. And there's these 11 other employees. And I wouldn't even be surprised if these other oxen drivers, his employees, 
showed a little resistance at this point to what was going on. Maybe they, they knew they, they, they were about to be unemployed. And so maybe they tried to talk him out of it. You know, listen, Elisha, don't, don't be radical. Don't, don't take this faith thing too far. I mean, lots of people have called. You're called to be a farmer. Just, just be a farmer. That's okay. But leaving all that you know, like, you're, you're absolutely crazy. Are you really going to give up all this? And so they just kept coming at him. And I think if we overheard that conversation, Elisha would say something like, yeah, yeah, I am. And I know it looks crazy now. But if God is calling me, I have to respond. And if I go, I'm not coming back. And so what did Elijah do? To demonstrate that he was breaking the ties of his past. That he was truly sacrificing in order to respond to the call of God in his life. Verse 21, he took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and give it to the people. And they ate. He throws himself a farewell party. He has this massive barbecue. He he calls the community together to celebrate. He slaughters the oxen. He takes the wood from the plowing equipment. He starts a big bonfire, and he starts to cook the meat. And so you have these 11 guys probably off in a corner somewhere, sulking, probably questioning Elisha's sanity, and he's running around asking his guests, How do you like your oxen? He literally destroys the tools of his trade. He burns the plowing equipment. That would be like a farmer today going out and torching his combine. And they eat the oxen. This event, as I was thinking this summer, earlier this summer, as we... uh, sat down, we said, well, what characters would you like to to talk about? And Elisha came front and center for one, not because I've preached on him ever before, but because of his personal impact this story has had on my own life. You see, in the fall of 1987, I was attending the University of Alberta. I was in general science at the time, and I was hoping to get into dental school. Things were going relatively well for me. I had a really good summer job. I made good money. I had my own car. Um, I... It, it, I was in a good place, just carrying on, pursuing my dreams. And then I heard a message on this very passage, on the call of Elisha. And God, in, there's no question in my mind that God used that message to call me into full-time pastoral ministry. In fact, I still remember the line that the, the preacher used that really got to me. He says, you might be two years into your computing science degree. Burn it! In reference, of course, to the burning of the plows. Well, I was two years into this general science degree, so in my mind it was close enough. Anyways, I was ready to quit university pretty much uh, right away and go to Bible school to be be trained for ministry. I even applied to a school in the U.S. I was accepted, but then I immediately met some resistance. Most notably, of course, from my dad who thought, You're giving up two and a half years of your university education and not getting your degree? Are you crazy? I had a friend that I was going to go to Bible school with, and at the very last minute, he he bailed. So now I'm kind of feeling pretty alone, and so I chickened out. 
and I stayed, and I made other plans, and I decided to finish and then maybe go on and do an after-degree in education. And I had all sorts of rationalizations for this, thinking that I could serve God as a teacher, which, by the way, you can, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But God was specifically calling me into ministry. I didn't know exactly what that would look like, but I knew that there there was something more that he wanted me to do. And I was ready. Now, almost a year later, God used a message on the call of Isaiah to remind me of his call on my life, and this time I didn't run. And the timing was actually perfect because I finished my university degree, and so I had an undergraduate as a bachelor, in a Bachelor of Science, and I could move right into seminary and, and go, start working towards a Master of Divinity and the training that I needed for pastoral ministry. And I share that story of my life because I believe that God calls each of us like Elisha, into ministry, or at least into leadership. Maybe not pastoral ministry, maybe not in the context of the church, but he still has a call on each of our lives. And our responsibility is to listen for that call and then to respond to it. So how might God be calling you today? Let me throw, you, throw a couple examples out at you. One is the, the, the call to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. This is a call that goes out to everyone, and we start here, and we come to a place where we recognize that God has a call on our lives, and we say yes to Jesus. We recognize that he lived and died for our salvation so that we could have eternal life in the future, but abundant life now, that's what the whole gospel is about. And so he calls us, calls us to himself and to this relationship. And sometimes people resist that because of what they have to surrender or because of what they might have to sacrifice. Maybe they already know that they're in a relationship that doesn't honor God and that God might be calling them to leave that relationship. Or they're engaged in activities that don't don't honor God because they've, they've heard enough now and they have this sense that if I really surrender control of my life, because that's the biggest thing. We're people who have a tendency, we want to try to control our lives and control our circumstances, and it's all about control. And we don't even like to think about the idea of giving up and surrendering control. But make no mistake, saying yes to Jesus has a cost, and there's a sacrifice. Secondly, I believe we're all called to ministry. How that looks can be very different. The context that it might be in is very different. But we have this calling to serve his kingdom to be on mission. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, But you are not like that. He's speaking to believers. He says, For you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest. You, sorry, you are royal priests, a holy nation. God's very own possession As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And that's the transformation that takes place. Is that there's all, this is a constant metaphor throughout the scriptures. Is that when we're apart from God, when we're separated from God, we're in darkness. And we're called to say yes to him. We're brought from darkness into light. And when we're in the light, then we have a responsibility. We are priests. We're ministers. And so we serve. We serve in his kingdom. Thirdly, I believe, though, that there are some that are called 
to full-time ministry, to full-time Christian ministry. I don't want to ignore this, and I don't think you should either. Maybe you're just making the transition from high school into, into college, or maybe you've already got a degree, or you're working, and, and you know that it's, you've got gifts and skills and all of that to do that, but it's not that fulfilling for some reason, because maybe somewhere in the back of the mind's God saying, you know, you can use all of this, specifically in the context of Christian ministry maybe as a missionary, maybe a pa- as a pastor, and you're hearing this today, much like I heard this 30-some years ago, and, you're, and you just hear the Spirit of God just whispering to you and saying, yeah, you need to respond to that call. I'd love to talk to you about that if that's true. And fourthly, I believe that we're called to our vocations or to our, our careers. Because whatever vocation God has, has led us or leads us to, it, we should do it with all of our hearts as if you're serving God. So if you're a tradesperson or you're a teacher or a doctor, a nurse, an accountant, a lawyer, an engineer, whatever you may find yourself doing, don't ever think that you aren't called to it. And that there isn't this kind of second-class role here that, you know, if you're really spiritual, you're called to full-time Christian ministry, and, it, and if you're not, then it's sort of a second-class thing. No, absolutely not. Because whatever God has gifted you to do, he has called you to. You understand that? Whatever God has gifted you to do, he's called you to. But make no mistake, a response may require sacrifice. Friends, I believe more than ever, we need men and women to step into their calling as God's servants to a hurting world. Wherever God has called you, you can bring light and hope and joy and really make a difference right now. From the dental office to the classroom, from the office to the boardroom, from, from, from home to the job site, from a warehouse to the retail store, wherever you are, please see it as far more than just a job that pays the bills. See it as a calling, a high calling to serve God in that place. Elisha's response, this massive barbecue, demonstrated his complete commitment to following Elijah and responding to the call on his life. His response was decisive and it was final. Let me ask you, what might some of your plows be? What's keeping you from responding to God's call on your life? And have you ever thought that maybe, just maybe, God is asking you for more and it's time to burn some of those plows? Well, after that first phase of calling where we respond to being in relationship with God, to doing what he's called us to do, there's a phase that I'm going to call mentoring. Because after you're called, mentoring becomes so vital. And Elijah mentors Elisha to be his assistant, to be his successor. This was the succession plan. Elisha would be mentored by Elijah to carry this prophetic message after Elijah would depart. And so, for years, Elijah invests in Elisha. And Elisha, with his own teachable heart, he learns from Elijah. And we don't hear from Elisha again until 2 Kings chapter 2. And so this was a period of training, of mentoring for Elisha. 
And this was anywhere from probably six to ten years. So it wasn't an insignificant amount of time. And in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 12, Elisha calls Elijah father. And I think that speaks to the kind of relationship they had. That, that Elijah was like a spiritual father to Elisha. And Elisha watched and he observed and he heard how Elijah served as a prophet. And I'm sure there were times where Elijah offered him uh, words of encouragement, uh, trying to encourage Elisha. Maybe he gave him opportunities to, to, to speak into something and then pulled him aside and gave him some instructions. Other times, he may have even spoken some hard truths to him. Like in verse 20 after Elisha asks if he can go back and say goodbye to his mom and dad before going with them. Elijah says, well, go back. What have I done to you? And what Elijah was really saying is that it wasn't he who was calling Elisha. It was God's call. And and he was just being merely a messenger of that. And really, he had nothing to do with it. He was just delivering this message from God to Elisha. And it was up to Elisha whether or not he would follow that call. It was his own decision. And Elijah then was just delivering this message and doing exactly what God had given him to do. Remember, his role was to go and anoint Elisha to succeed him as a prophet. And so Elijah was basically washing his hands at this point of any responsibility around Elisha actually coming with him. Elisha would have to deal with God if he decided to turn and run back to all that he had and to run from that call. You see, that's what mentors do. They help us to discern God's call on our lives. They, they provide a, a method of confirmation. Because I've seen many times where somebody says, oh, well, I'm called to this, or I'm called into ministry. I'm called into, into leadership. And they come into that environment, and, and you realize going, eh, maybe not. Maybe there aren't the gifts that you need. Maybe there isn't the kind of attitude um, and personality that you need in that. Maybe this isn't a good fit for you. And so having mentors who confirm God's call on our lives is incredibly important. And sometimes they show us the way. Sometimes they offer us opportunities to learn and to grow. Sometimes they offer encouragement. Sometimes they speak hard truth. I've been blessed to have some great mentors along my journey I would say they start right with some of the coaches that I had in in playing sports, the teachers that I had in junior high and high school. Many of them stand out far more than others because of the impact that they had on my lives and the little things that they said to me. Pastors that have spoken into my life. And so for me, after I responded to the call to full-time ministry, I left the U of A. I went to what is now Taylor Seminary. It was January of 1989. It was, the la- it was my first semester, and it was the last semester for a number of other pastors. One of them, who was, a, who was a man by the name of Howard Lawrence. I know some of you know him. He was a pastor at Central Baptist at the time. And I remember just in the course of conversation with him one time, he said, so, so what are you going to do next year? And I remember thinking, that's kind of a, a stupid question. Like, I'm going to school, duh. And he says, well, you can't just go to school. You know, you need to be a pastor. You know, you need to do pastoral things. Education is good, but, but you need some of the practical experience that goes with it. Incredibly wise words. And so I was hired at Central Baptist to be the senior high youth worker. And, and 15 hours a week was my starting position. And we had like five students. One of them was Brad Liskey, who was leading worship this morning. 
He was in high school, and I was his youth pastor. And one Friday night event, Brad decided not to show up. And there were two female leaders I had myself, and two female students showed up. And at the time, I was in seminary, which was connected to North American Baptist College at the time. They had a basketball team. I was on the basketball team. We had a basketball game that night. I was skipping the basketball team because I had this responsibility with this work and this ministry that I was being called to. But I'm looking at this, and it doesn't add up. There's me, two female leaders, and two female students. So I go to Howard, and I say, Howard, you know, um, I don't know if I really need to go along. We're actually had, we're going on a bus to, to somewhere with another group. And um, I said, you know, I got my two female leaders here, and there's only two female students. I mean, that's like one-on-one. They're good. Would it be okay if I go and play my basketball game tonight? I'll never forget this. Here I can say this because I've repeated this story many times, and I'll never forget what Howard, he looked at me, and he goes, oh, sure, that's, that's awesome, go, because you need the exercise, you'll have a lot of fun, I know you, you value your teammates, but when you go, you might want to think about whether you're going to be a pastor or a, ba- a professional basketball player. And you know when somebody says something to that, like, you're like, oh, okay, well, I, I, I won't go, I'll stay, because I knew right away, like, it was a really dumb thing to ask. And he's like, no, 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 go, absolutely go, but just think about what I said. And so I went. And I remember the whole way driving from the church to the college where the game was, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm like, this is so dumb. I I should have gone. This was a bad decision. So you go out and play a basketball game, and it was probably the worst game I've ever played in my life. That stood out with, with good reason in my mind. And I went to the coach after the game, and I quit because I realized that this wasn't what I was called to. It was just something I was doing for fun. But Howard spoke those words into my life. You might want to think about, are you called to be a professional basketball player or a pastor? I've had other mentors along the way. Most recently, Sam Nickel. Some of you know Sam has just been a blessing to me in my life as I've journeyed through some difficult uh, personal things over this last couple of years. And it's just, it's awesome. And there's so much more that could be said, but basically, as you know, mentoring is just when somebody who's more senior trains a younger person for leadership, offers support and guidance and advice. And you know what? In our spiritual journeys, we need that exact kind of mentoring that goes on. So I want to give you two points of application this morning. Number one, find a mentor. You need to look for somebody that is older, that has walked the road before you, and say, say to them, Would you spend a coffee time with me once a month, whatever it is, to mentor me? Mentors aren't going to come seek you out because they're too humble. They probably don't even think they have much to give. But there are so many godly uh, older saints at TCC, and you need to seek them out and say, hey, you were an engineer. I'm going into engineering, and, and could you teach me a little bit about how you brought your faith to bear into work? Whatever it is, seek them out and have the right attitude to say, I'm teachable. I want to learn. This is, I'm just going to soak it up because I want to learn from you. And then secondly, be a mentor. So first of all, if someone then approaches you and asks you to mentor them, don't say, oh, I I really don't have much to give. Say yes without any hesitation because you need to invest in the lives of others, especially a younger generation. And maybe if you're looking for a mentor and you have a mentor, you can actually be a mentor to someone else as well at the same time. 
So just investing in the lives of others. Because again, right now, I think this is so important. People are navigating some of the biggest challenges any of us have ever faced. And you, and, and you need to just be able to sit with people who say, like, what would you do? I don't know what to do. And you can help them, advise them, walk through that. So calling, mentoring, thirdly, following. We read in the very last sentence of verse 21, right after this barbecue is over, that Elisha, quote, set out to follow Elijah, and he became his servant. <clears throat> so we know that Elijah responded to the call on his life. He was decisive in what he did with the plows and his oxen. But he followed Elijah, and he was mentored by him. It's clear that he served Elijah in that process. Second Kings 3.11 talks about him pouring water on Elijah's hands, this simple, menial task of helping him keep his hands clean. And it's one thing, listen, to become a servant, and another thing to have a servant's heart and to serve from the heart. It's obvious that Elisha did. He learned quickly that the secret to successful ministry lies in having a servant's heart. And that's true in every calling, approaching it with a servant's heart. And Elisha had a heart for God, which he had observed in the life of Elijah. And when he, he, at one point, he even asked Elijah for a double portion of his spirit. And so after being called and mentored, he now then follows in Elisha's, or sorry, Elijah's footsteps. And there's no doubt that Elisha is a leader. A leader is an influencer. But a good leader is first and foremost a follower. And so often, over 30 times, Elisha is referred to as a man of God. Is, is, is there any better word to be described, uh, you know, in our lives? This is a woman of God. This is a man of God. And why would people say that? It's when we can stand before them, like the Apostle Paul said, and said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So I'll lead, he says, but really, I'm following Jesus. And I'll lead by example. Aren't those the types of leaders we want to follow? Aren't those the types of leaders we want to be? Because everyone has influence. If you, if you play on a team, you're an influencer. If you're part of a group, you're an influencer. If you're in, the com- in a company with others, you're an influencer. If you're a teacher, you're an influencer. If you're a parent, you have the responsibility of influencing your children. You are a leader in your home. And therefore, it's absolutely critical that we can say, follow my example as I follow the example of of Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant. That's what Jesus did. He served others. So friends, can we say that? That when we lead by example, we lead by serving, we lead by following Jesus. So much can be learned but just by watching. And, and make no mistake, people are watching. Your kids are watching you. How you handle stressful situations. How you interact with others in person or online. I could spend a lot more time talking about servant leadership, but I, I think you get the point. We are called to lead, to make a difference wherever God sets us down. But it starts with following Jesus. And so are you following Jesus? 
Would you give your heart to him today? Say yes to him. And to embark on this incredible transformative journey where we respond to a call, where we may be mentored in that relationship, and we follow his example. We keep following and we keep serving. So friends, respond to the call this morning. Find and be a mentor. Keep following and serving. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the, the story of Elisha. Thank you for his testimony this morning. As ancient as it may be, as distance in time and space as it may be from us today. But Lord, the principles apply. That you call us just as you called Elisha. That we need to find and be a mentor ourselves that would help us and advise us on this journey of faith, offer guidance and direction, and we're not left to our own devices, making up our own things as we go. But we look to those that have gone before us, and we follow after them, and we maybe look behind us and say, hey, follow me as I follow the example of Jesus. And so, Father, help us to keep following and serving you wherever you've placed us. Lord, we know that these are scary times. Lord, I pray for the decisions that moms and dads have to make, the, the, the situation that teachers are, are stepping into this fall. I pray that you give them wisdom and give them peace. Help them to make the right decision for their family, not what someone else is telling them they should do. Or, uh, Father, protect us from any kind of... of, of um, animosity between, between us and these issues. But help teachers just step into this with confidence and trust and faith to follow you, Jesus. Lead by example. That's what servants do. Lord, help us. First and foremost, to give our hearts to you and then to follow you all the days of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name.